Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from snowy Tucson, Arizona, as my family and I continue our RV adventure around the country. It did, in fact, snow here yesterday, which is not what we signed up for, but we're rolling with it, having a lot of fun. And I am really excited to welcome Dr. Mark Barnes, who's the Vice President of Institutional Advancement at Dillard University, to the show today. Welcome, Dr. Barnes. How are you today? Thanks for having me. Hey, I am doing great, and I'm thrilled uh, to uh, to host you and to hear more about your story. And one of the things that I've enjoyed hearing about, uh, given our uh, collective and mutual work in the higher education advancement sector, is hearing from our guests about your own higher education journey. So I want you to take me back to 17-year-old, 18-year-old uh, Mark, and um, uh, tell me a little bit more about what led you to your uh, own undergraduate experience at Xavier University of, of Louisiana. Sure, sure. And actually, my, my first choice was actually LSU. Um, I wanted to go where the football team was and uh, to have that whole experience. Uh, my mom actually convinced me to think about Xavier uh, one, because I had grown up in Catholic schools, Xavier um, is a Catholic institution, and she kind of wanted me to, to continue that tradition. Uh, I was ready to break away from that tradition, um, but she, she kind of led me to that, and then she wanted me to go to, uh, to an HBCU, so that was also important to both of my parents, um, and my brother, my older brother, had gone to LSU. He did not have a great experience, so... Uh, she thought that would also be my experience. So I, I let my mom convince me to, uh, uh, to apply to Xavier and uh, they, they, I was accepted uh, and uh, I could not have made a better choice. It was, it was uh, I decided going to feel it. Uh, it was a great choice. I had a great undergraduate experience. And my understanding is you studied marketing. Was that an easy choice? Uh, how did you gravitate to that? And I'd love to know about some of the I don't know, formative experiences you had that make you feel so strongly about that uh, choice? It actually, uh, it, it actually was not uh, uh, an easy choice. It wasn't even my first choice. Um, so growing up, I thought I was going to be a priest. Uh, I, I thought about being a priest um, as, a, as a kid. Uh, and then I learned the definition of celibacy. So I decided that wasn't going to be the route for me. Uh, and um, so then my 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 career goal focused then on being a lawyer. Uh, so I actually went in as an English major uh, with the intent on going to law school. Uh, it was about maybe a semester in before I realized that I did not like English as a major. Uh, and I suffered through it maybe another semester and, and then I decided to change my uh, to business with a focus on marketing. Uh, when I was exploring potential uh, major changes with my advisor, uh, we, we looked at something like sociology, we looked at um, business fields, uh, and really uh, my advisor did a really good job of, of asking questions about what it is I was interested in, what did I like? And she really, uh, really guided me towards business with a, with a concentration in marketing. Uh, so it ended up being a great Decision. It was a great advice uh, from my advisor at the time. So that, that's really how I, I got into it. It wasn't my first choice, but it was the right. 
And so as you advance through the program and uh, senior year starts to approach and so forth, how did you think about the career path having, you know, a big pivot from the priesthood to business and marketing uh, to kind of what happens next? Um, what, what was the immediate path? Because you didn't start in advancement right upon graduation. No. It took a while to kind of get here. So, yeah, tell us more about that journey. Yeah, so I, you know, initially I thought I was going to go to law. I mean, to go to uh, to graduate school, uh, maybe get an MBA or you know some kind of a master's degree. Um, I was working in retail at the same time I was in undergrad. Uh, so I was working at actually I had two jobs. Uh, one was at a, a school uniform retail store, uh, and one was at a sports shop. We sold like sports paraphernalia and clothes. Uh, so the job at the school uniform store actually gave me a promotion. I was now being, I was in a supervisory role uh, and I was making a little bit of money. Uh, so I decided to do that instead. Uh, and then right after that, I did that for maybe a year or so uh, after graduation. Uh, and I got called by Vanity Fair Corporation to work at their store uh, in Texas. And so I was going to work at, they have an outlet mall that's called VF Factory Outlet. Uh, so I was going to work as uh, one of the managers in one of their stores. And I did that for about a year. I went to Texas and did that. They wanted to send me to Seattle, Washington, or a town right outside of Seattle. Uh, and I went there for a few weeks and I just hated it. Didn't like it there. It was drab. I, I just, sorry for the people in the Seattle area. Uh, it's a great city. I love Seattle, but I just didn't want to live there as a 20-something-year-old kid. It's, uh, it was too far away from home. I'm from New Orleans. Uh, you know, my whole family's in New Orleans. It, it just wasn't a good setup for me. Uh, so I asked the company if I could just stay where I was. Uh, they did not give me the option to do that. It was all or nothing. Uh, so I took nothing. And I called my parents and said, hey, look, I think I need to resign from this and come back. Uh, and so for parents being parents, you know, my dad helped pack me up and brought me home. Uh, and so then it was, now I don't have a job. Uh, and trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Uh, there's a bank uh, in New Orleans. Uh, they actually spread out uh, in several states now, but it's, a, it's an African-American owned and operated bank called Liberty Bank hired me as a teller. And uh, it was a journey uh, that I will never forget. So I started there as a, as a teller. And honestly, I took the job because I needed to make some money. You know, I had student loans starting to roll in. I had a car note and uh, these bills starting to come. So I needed a job. Uh, so I figured I'd do that until I found something, uh, something else. Well, I love banking. Like, I fell in love with banking like the moment I walked in the door. And so I told my boss, uh, I'm going to shout her out. Her name is Andy Plessis. Um, Ann was phenomenal to me. And I told Ann that uh, I really can see myself doing this. And she said, well, you're going to have to figure out how to learn the other aspects, but not slip on your telework. Uh, so I would you know, um, balance my, my drawer at the end of the day uh, as fast as I could. And then I'd go sit on the platform and find out what, figure out what they were doing. Uh, after about six months, I got promoted to the, to the platform. And uh, so I 
that was fun. I did that for about another six months. And then um, Ann put me in a management training program uh, that lasted about a year at the bank. So I went through all the different aspects of banking from uh, the retail management side to uh, loan underwriting, uh, credit reviews. It, it was just, I, I went through the whole gamut. Uh, we settled in on um, putting me in as a branch manager. So I don't think I was a 26 or 27 year old branch uh, at the bank. Uh, and the branch that they assigned me to happened to be across the street from Gillette University. Uh, and so I, I was the banker for many of the people who were at Gillard, uh, including a relatively new president named Mike, Dr. Michael Lomax and his vice president for advancement at the time, Love Collins. Uh, so, you know, from there, um, as their banker, they would come in the bank and, and talk to me all the time. Uh, Love Collins was talking to me, maybe, I, I had probably been a branch manager for several years at this point. Uh, started talking to me about maybe doing fundraising as a career at Gillard. So I had two problems. One, I had no idea what fundraising as a career meant. Uh, never heard of it uh, as an undergraduate at Xavier, I never interacted with anything called fundraising. Uh, it just, I wasn't exposed to it. Uh, that was the first thing. The other thing was I went to Xavier. If you know anything about Dillard and Xavier, it's the crosstown rival. So it's like, there's no way I'm gonna go and work at Dillard as a Xavier grad. Um, so we, we had about six months of conversation of, of love coming into the branch and, and talking to me about uh, you know, what it meant to work in higher education, what it meant to be a fundraiser. And uh, I said, look, I do not want to beg people for money for a living. And uh, Love's response to me was, every time I come in this bank, you always ask me, do you need a loan application? Do you, want, do you need a credit card application? He said, you ask me for money every time I come in here. He said, well, why not do that for somebody's life where it will really make a difference? And that was the thing that struck me. Uh, I, and how could I, not, I mean, I didn't know how to say no to that. So I said, well, let's talk about it and let's, and let's see. So I, I came in and did a couple of interviews and it captured me. Um, I decided to give it a try. And here I am 21 years later still doing it. I love that backstory. Thank you for sharing. And um, I mean, I, I also commend the leadership team at Dillard. You know, the fact that you, uh, loved banking you thought it was your life's work you're a rising star branch manager you know nothing about fundraising and they're your arch rivals it did not phase them to to, to really uh to to try to inspire you and they must have seen something um in you and in, in your work um so you, you kind of buy into the concept what was it like once you made that move where you had such a such a strong career path that it emerged after the Seattle kind of pivot. Um, was it the same kind of feeling when you moved to Dillard, when you moved to advance or you just felt like, no, now this is my life's work or was it Rocky at the beginning? It wasn't Rocky. Um, I can't say that I, I saw myself doing this as a, as a long-term career when I first came in, but I will say that it didn't take long. So I was hired the Kresge Foundation provided Dillard and several other HBCUs, what they called at the time um, uh, 
capacity building grants. And the, the whole goal was to help those institutions increase their fundraising infrastructure. So I was hired under that grant opportunity, but Cresty didn't just stop at providing the money. They also invested in training opportunities for uh, all of the, the staff at those five institutions. And then they also selected three people from each of the institutions to be called what we called at that time, Cresty Advancement Fellows but they would get more intense training uh, for a, a period of time. Well, I was selected as one of the three at Dillard to be a trustee advancement fellow. Uh, so, if, so I, didn't, I, I wasn't just thrown into the fire and said, hey, go figure it out. Uh, I really see, received a lot of training. Uh, and it was, it was specialized training. Uh, it was focused on our specific careers and career paths. Uh, so I would say after about a year, uh, I really figured out that this is what I want to do. I, this is, I don't want to leave here. I, I want to stay here and figure out where, where I go from here. Could you tell me a little bit more when you think back to the Kresge Foundation kind of sponsorship investment capacity building? I mean, training is such, I still, I think such a need in the sector and it can be very ad hoc at certain shops. Others maybe have a real, um, you know, the same way that you had a management training program at banks. I mean, I think banks, have done a really good job of creating a structured uh, way for an entry-level person who doesn't know that much about the sector but has a good kind of general set of skills to get up to speed on all of those different areas. I don't know if we do it as well as the banks do in the advancement sector. It sounds like the Kresge Foundation filled some of that gap. When you think back to um, what stands out most, the before and after from that training experience, are there certain capacities or skills that they helped you build that otherwise it just might've been um, more difficult on your own? They, I think the thing they did, they did for me the most uh, in that process was uh, I came with a personality. Uh, and I think that is what attracted you know, Dr. Lomax and Love to me in the first place. Uh, they helped me figure out how to channel and use my personality um, with the technicalities of fundraising. And so it, it became a training of really the how-to uh, in terms of you know, uh, how do you manage an annual fund program? Uh, how do you identify, cultivate, and solicit uh, maybe gifts? So we, we went through those kinds of trainings, but it was always with, you, know, you have the personality to do these things. And so uh, I think what, the, what I got from the training and, and the program that Crestgate put together was something that was very specialized for me. Uh, and it was based on who I am, based on my personality, uh, based on my relationship building skills that they saw the world. And that was pretty natural. Well, tell me more about that. I mean, when you say they, they helped uh, channel your personality, what's an example of uh, it not being channeled maybe as effectively or in the right way versus how they activated it or coached you in that regard? Yeah, so a, a lot of it was role playing. So we did a lot of role playing. Right. And, and so what in the, in the, in the process, uh, what I learned was I have a lot of nervous energy uh, and they were able to identify that and say, look, you move around a lot. You swing a lot when you walk in it, when you're talking, uh, these are the things you need to make sure that you're sitting down when you're talking. Uh, you need to make sure that when you are standing up and making presentations that you're maybe grabbing a, a podium like they gave me very technical things that can help me in terms of how 
I interacted with people. Um, I have a tendency of talking pretty fast sometimes, especially when I get excited. Uh, so we talked about that. How do you slow that down? Uh, how do you not talk as much and listen more? Um, so those were the types of things that I got out of that program, uh, as well as some of the technical things, like you know, we learned about data analytics and those types of things as well. Uh, but they really, you know, we did a lot of role playing, uh, so I was able to practice and hone those skills on uh, in, in kind of real life situations, but also practice situations. I'm curious if, um, well, first of all, I think it's just so valuable when you have somebody who can give you such tactical and constructive feedback where it doesn't hurt your feelings, where it's really just that coaching and, um, and, and shaping that, you know, we probably take for granted uh, too often. I'm curious if that's shaped your leadership style at, at all. I mean, do you still bring role-playing into your work at Dillard or uh, do you find yourself giving your, your colleagues as specific of feedback? Um, you know, will you say to somebody, Hey, grab the podium, you're, kind of flailing around over there. Uh, right. I mean, did that make it easier for you to be more specific? Because I think sometimes it's hard to give feedback. It's hard to receive feedback. So I'm just curious. Um, that's your a great, position that's on a that. Great, that's a great question. Um, so uh, let me just be honest and say, I don't do it as much as I probably should. Um, we're, we're a small shop. Uh, I, don't, I, you know, I try to do as much training as I can with the staff. And we do identify areas uh, where I feel like people can, can do better and give better. Uh, but it's probably more reactive than it is proactive. So uh, we don't come in and, and I, now you're putting something on my mind and that's probably something I wanna uh, try to get started now so that you, you've asked me that question. But, uh, but I do give a lot of constructive feedback, uh, never in a threatening way. You know, I, I, I absolutely love my team. So let me just start there. Uh, they're great. Uh, but there are always things that we can work on and improve. And so I'm, I'm pretty um, active about getting them that kind of feedback. Um, I'm probably less active in terms of you know, practically saying, let's have some practice sessions. You know, how are we going to do right. uh, So that, that's yeah. probably that's a really good thing. Yeah, look, I, I was thinking the same thing about, about my team, honestly. I'm like, we, we have done role-playing at times in the past, but it's been a while. Uh, and so I was sort of thinking to myself, Maybe we need to bring that back a little bit. Maybe it's because of the the Zoom world that we're all living in. Maybe that right. that kind of yes. uh, you know put it to the side. But as it relates to giving your team feedback, I mean, do you have examples? Um, you don't need to be too specific, or you know, certainly not name names. But what's an example of maybe the kind of feedback that you've observed over the years as a leader that um, that maybe sometimes goes unsaid, where you know it might maybe frustrate a supervisor or a boss, but they don't actually say it out loud to try to remedy it because maybe they don't want to make it awkward or create tension or scare someone or whatever it may be. I mean, are there certain categories of feedback over the years where you've seen patterns that have emerged? Yeah. So I think the, the biggest one is communication skills. Uh, and for some people, that means written communication skills. And for some, uh, for some others, that means verbal uh, communication skills. So what I try to do is provide know, really solid feedback on, on writing. So if, if somebody's presenting a grant proposal uh, that has some content or technical deficiencies, uh, I try to be very specific about what those deficiencies are, particularly when I see trends uh, in their writing. 
uh, so that we can improve those things for those individuals. Um, the technical part is pretty easy because it's cut and dry. The content part is sometimes the, the, you know, the, tug, the tug and pull. Uh, if they don't agree with you know, what I'm saying is, is probably more pertinent content or a different way to phrase the content. Um, I, I've seen more resistance with that than I have with the technical writing. Do you have to remind them sometimes that you were an aspiring English major when push comes to shove? That's right, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> do, you, do you know who you're talking to here? I was an English major. And, and my wife always it. marvels because I, you know, she'll ask a question or, you know, the, one of my kids will ask a question about something and I'll go back and, you know, spout some English rule. If you're like, how do you remember those things? I was like, you know, some people, some people memorize and remember mathematical formulas. I remember English rules. <laughs> um, I love it. I love it. But the, so, so you, I was just going to say, so you, um, you know, back to the career path a little bit. I mean, you, you went through that training with the Kresge Foundation. You had a really good run at Dillard uh, and then made a pivot uh, into the more arts and, and, and music space, which sounds super interesting. And I know we want to talk a little bit more about that, but um, what prompted you? I mean, you're, you're kind of a I would call it a boomerang where, you know, you, you went away and then eventually you came back and we'll get yes. to the return. But what was the catalyst after those nine years at Dillard? Uh, I think now we're talking 2009 right. to say, you know what, this has been a good run. Um, I've had a great experience. I've learned a lot, but I need to go and, and try something else. I, I felt like it was time. Uh, I had been here, like you said, for nine years. Uh, we had gone through the whole Hurricane Katrina experience in terms of rebuilding. Uh, so that kind of took a toll on me, um, you know, just physically and mentally, I was tired. Um, it, it wasn't that I, I wanted to get away from Dillard, because uh, I love Dillard, but I thought it was time for my career to take a different turn. Uh, and I wanted to see what else was out there. Uh, so uh, the opportunity actually came to me, uh, somebody told me about the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation uh, looking for a director of development. Uh, and I saw it as an opportunity, number one, to learn something completely different than what I had been doing for the, for the last nine years. Uh, but also I, I felt like it was the type of, of place in the type of job uh, that could use my skill set. Um, and I also thought that it would provide me an opportunity to really expand my horizons in terms of the, the people in the community I was coming across, uh, who I was meeting on a, on a regular basis. So it really was just an opportunity for me to pivot. Um, you know, I, I loved it at Dillard, uh, could have stayed at that time, uh, but it was really just an opportunity to, to do something. And, and let's just be honest, this is the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation. I mean, this is the New Orleans Jazz Fest. What could be more exciting than that? I mean, it was going to be a really fun job. Uh, going to pay more money than I was making at the time. Uh, and it was going to be an, an opportunity for me to, to really learn something very different uh, than what I had been doing for the last nine years. And just tell me a little bit more. I mean, you just touched on kind of being in the philanthropic sector, you know, look, being anywhere in New Orleans during uh, Katrina and, and the rebuild was, was, you know, unbelievably emotional and probably still really underappreciated. But I imagine 
when you think about some of the bright spots during such a challenging time, I mean, Jazz Fest had to be one of those bright spots, right? It had to be one of those um, areas where even in 09, 10, 11, as you were there, we're kind of in the midst of the financial crisis on top of the challenges with, with Katrina, but it had to be, you know, pretty kind of inspiring to be a part of the good after there'd been so much focus on, on the bad and the challenges. Yeah, that was actually part of the appeal. Um, you know, nobody wanted to think a whole lot about, you know, fun stuff for those first couple of years, but, but really, you know, when we got to 2007, 2008, we were already just getting back to normal. Um, the, the Jazz Fest never stopped. I mean, we, it, it kept going. Uh, and it really was, I would say, Mardi Gras and the Jazz Fest were really the two really bright spots of the year uh, for people in New Orleans. And in addition to that, it was a bright spot for the economy because it was still bringing in people from all over the world. Uh, to come in and, and enjoy this. Some of the some of the jazz fest best years in those years after Hurricane Katrina. So it 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 absolutely was an opportunity to be someplace uh, that provided a spark to the community. Uh, there was a really super cool project also that they wanted um, us to, to lead and, and to help fund. Uh, the the foundation has a school, a music school for children, and it's free for students. Uh, you can come there, you can pick up an instrument for the first time and learn how to play it, or you can be really good and get better. Um, but it was free for, for the children of the greater New Orleans area. Uh, but it didn't have a home. We were using spaces at other schools in, uh, around the city. Uh, the foundation had purchased some years before a funeral home that was right next door to its, its um, building. So it, it, it expanded the campus. It was an old abandoned funeral home and had been abandoned for a number of years. Um, raccoons and everything inside of it. And so, but they thought it would be a really cool space to put the new music school. So uh, my job was to lead a campaign to find, you know, to get the money to build this music school. Uh, so it, I, I was there for about four years and we had raised about 80% of the money by the time I left. Uh, and the music school was renovated and opened about a year after I left. So it was that that, that was really cool to go back and, and see it. I'll tell you the other thing, when I left the Jazz and Heritage Foundation, I joined the board. So when I came back to Dillard, uh, I joined the board of that foundation and stayed on that for a few years. Uh, and that was also a really cool experience. So I got I still had an opportunity to watch the watch the new school play out and, uh, and come to fruition. That's amazing. And uh, congratulations on getting that over the finish line. I, I've got to ask, though, during that period or maybe even since, as you've been involved with the board, what's your single favorite Jazz Fest memory? Woo. Is that a fair question? Am I allowed to even that ask is, that? No, it's, it's, it's a totally fair question. It's just one that's hard to answer. It's like but by the time when you walk in the gate, it's, it's, it's a great it's, it's a great time. Uh, but you know what? My, my favorite, actually, or the, the local artists. Um, I know, you know, the Jazz Fest is really known now for having these big name artists. And they are really cool and they really draw great crowds. Uh, but my favorite is like sitting in the gospel tent and listening to church choir. Uh, I, that is for me the, the, the Jazz Fest experience. I probably spent about 60% of my time in the, uh, in the gospel tent. Yeah, just listening to the, 
the local choirs, uh, and they get into it. I mean, they prepare and they're, they're really good. So I think my favorite experience is really watching that and eating. I, I love it. Well, uh, all right. Well, what's the one food we got to get when we go to Jazz Fest? And by the way, as we sit here in early 2021, speaking of being in the need of bright spots, you know, who couldn't use a good Jazz Fest right yes, now? So yes. uh, I think we're all ready. Yeah, we are. We are so ready. They announced that they pushed it back to October. So we're looking forward to yeah. that. It's usually in April, um, last of April, beginning of May. Um, so there are, I, I want to recommend a couple of things for you. I want to recommend Crawfish Monica. Uh, crawfish Monica is a, is a crawfish pasta uh, type of uh, uh, deal. It's really, really good. Then uh, I love the crawfish noodles. I like, obviously, I love seafood. Uh, and then there's a white chocolate bread pudding that is to die. For. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jazz Fest, is, it's, it's been on the bucket list and, uh, and uh, really hopeful that everything is back going strong here, uh, yeah. here this fall. But um, look, along the way, and I, you know, I don't exactly know when it is on your journey, but uh, you've, you've been able to work with some pretty prominent philanthropists. And we love asking our guests, what's you know, the most memorable gift you've closed or, or some of the most memorable people you've gotten to work with. Uh, we recently had a, a colleague from the University of North Carolina, um, uh, Charlotte, who got to work with Michael Jordan in regards to some philanthropic work there. Um, but you've got a pretty big name yourself. So you want to tell me a little bit about that yeah. highlight so when that before, happened? Before I do that, if, if you don't mind, I, want, I, I, do, want, I do want to mention um, uh, and remember Hank Aaron. Uh, Hank Aaron was also very supportive of Villa University, uh, a friend of the school, somebody I got to know, you know over the years. And, you know, we just lost uh, Mr. Aaron. So I do want to acknowledge that because he uh, was a phenomenal Order of not just Villa, but a lot of HBCUs. So I just want to acknowledge him and, and just say how much we are going to miss Hank Aaron. He was a great baseball player. He was a better person. Uh, but my my well, Ray said. Charles, thank you. My Ray Charles experience was was uh, clearly for me uh, the most memorable. So it started when you know when I got here, I was kind of the the low man on the totem pole at this right. So. Um, Ray Charles was brought in to be our commencement speaker, I believe it was in like 2003. Um, so my job was to get in the limo, meet him at the airport, and make sure he got to his hotel. That, that was my job. Like I had to you know, be kind of the, the, the local escort. Um, so you know, Ray Charles flew on his own private jet. So the, those don't typically fly to New Orleans International. There's a, a smaller um, airport here in the city uh, where they go. So I'm in the limo. We drive on the tarmac after the plane lands. Uh, and I meet uh, Mr. Charles and his, uh, his, his team right at the, air, uh, the airplane door. And he's like, as I said, you know, I'm Mark Barnes. I work at Billy University. Uh, and I'm going to show you around, make sure you, are, you, know, you have everything that you need. Any questions you have, make sure you, hey, man, you want to see my airplane? It's like, sure. <laughs> like, the first thing we did was a tour of his airplane, and he gave me the tour. Um, so that, and, and so we, we get in the car, and we were friends before we got to the, to the hotel. Um, it, was, uh, it was, I'll never forget, it was Mr. Charles, um, his uh, longtime assistant, Joe Adams, 
um, there's a gentleman by the name of Carl who was his handler and Valerie Irvin who was his assistant. And uh, so we had a really good time that entire weekend. Uh, and Mr. Charles said, you know what, we're going to do something for Gillis. They actually came back a little while later, maybe a month, a few months later or something. And they came back uh, and he said, uh, there's a program, you know, we talked about this culinary type program that he wanted to do. His concern was that uh, he called us the microwave generation. He said he spent a lot of time in New Orleans where he had the best food he had ever eaten. And he was afraid that the culture of food was going to die because, you know, my generation was, you know, doing the quick and easy stuff and microwaving our food and this kind of thing. So he really was concerned about that and wanted to see the culture of food survive. Uh, so, uh, and that was something that was really up our alley anyway. Uh, so we talked about what that would look like. And he said, I'm gonna give you a million dollars to start this program. And we were like, okay, uh, that's great. Uh, and so we put the program together based on his, based on his vision uh, and got it launched. Shortly thereafter, he passed away. Uh, and when he passed away, uh, Joe Adams took over the management of the, uh, of the foundation uh, until he couldn't do it anymore because he was uh, up in age as well. And then Valerie, who was then the assistant, uh, became the president and CEO of the foundation. Uh, Valerie and I are really good friends today. Uh, and we always say if we had parallel careers, because we both started at the bottom, and how you say started at the bottom, and now we're here. Uh, and so, um, uh, but we kind of, we had that, we did that together. We kind of grew up together. So Valerie, uh, even now, uh, is really good friends. Uh, and since that first million dollars, uh, they've given several more to Dillard. Uh, so they've, they've given four or five million dollars to, to Dillard over the years. Uh, even since Mr. Charles's first uh, million dollar donation. Uh, it was a really fun experience. It, it turned out to be a really great relationship. Uh, I can remember a time when I went to Los Angeles to, um, to visit his studio uh, and he gave me a tour of his studio. And it's, uh, it's a two-story complex uh, that you know, has a kitchen and all of that. He did everything himself. He made his own coffee, he fixed his own food. There's this huge soundboard. I mean, not, not, not your average soundboard. This thing is made this huge. He operated himself. Uh, and he told me, and then he had a, a soup closet that was just amazing because it was all of his suits and he could point to each one and tell you what, what each suit was and the pair of shoes that went with the suit. It was just an amazing, I mean, he was really an amazing person. Um, he said the only rule that he had, he only had one rule in his building is that you couldn't leave stuff on but other than that, people could do whatever they want. He didn't want people tiptoeing around him and, and treating him like you know he was different than anybody else. And you would never think he was um, just you know getting to know him. So he he was a super fantastic guy. Dr. Barnes, thank you for sharing. It's an amazing story, and I think for a lot of you know for myself and for our listeners who maybe haven't had the opportunity to um, you know be kind of on the inside for those sorts of conversations. It's just always really enlightening. I do have to ask, do you think when he showed up on his plane at that private airfield, um, the first time when you met him before he gave you that tour, do you think he already had in the back of his mind that he'd be supporting Dillard? Or do you think it really emerged through the experience that he had 
That's a very good question and one that we never, never, I never thought to ask. Um, honestly, I, 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 I think he may have thought that I would be something for Billy. I don't think he had thought through what that might look like. I think that, I think the amount and the purpose emerged as the relationship. Um, I, I suspect because we were giving him an honorary degree, um, he may have you know, thought about doing something. He had supported other institutions. Uh, he, he supports Morehouse. Uh, he has supported another HBCU at, um, prior to us. So I think he probably thought he would do something. Uh, but I think what that looked like was not uh, in his mind at the time. Appreciate you, uh, you sharing. And so um, we kind of just went back in time uh, to the, uh, what, what an amazing early career success. I mean, that just had to be so, so incredible. It, uh, you know, you make the move uh, working with Jazz Fest, et cetera, but then ultimately did a little bit of consulting and, and then made, uh, made the decision or the opportunity was presented to come back to, to Dillard in a real leadership position. And you definitely did some uh, continuing education of your own kind of along uh, this chapter of the journey. But um, just tell me a little bit about fast forwarding from 2013 when you went back to Dillard now as VP of advancement, um, some of the things that you're most proud of. And, and obviously over the last year, there's been a, a variety of challenges that we've all you know, navigated. And, and certainly um, I think the, the, the HBCU community has been in more of a spotlight than ever on, on many fronts. And so I just love your perspective on kind of the, the second time around um, as you, as you came, came back to, to Dillard. So shout out to, to Dr. Walter Kimbrough, uh, our president for, uh, for bringing me back. Uh, when at the time I was still actually working at the, um, the Jazz and Heritage Foundation, uh, but also looking toward the future, uh, you know, figuring out what was next. You know, we had already, we had, most of the campaign for the, for the building. So I was really trying to figure out what was next. I started a consulting company just as, you know, thinking that may be the next move for me. Um, when Dr. Kimbrough got here in 2012, uh, he began to look for um, the, the VP at that time, who, who was actually my boss, um, decided to retire. And uh, so Dr. Kimbrough started looking for a new VP, uh, and I applied for it. And to be honest, that was the first job I had ever applied for. Everything else had kind of come to me uh, and people just hired me um, with the exception of the teleposition, you know, that type of thing. But everything since then just kind of came to me. Um, but I decided to apply uh, to go back to Bill. And honestly, I didn't think he'd bring me back because I had already been there. Um, but when I made the, the, the round of finalists, um, I felt like I had a good chance, but I wasn't sure. Uh, and I know that Dr. Kimball, you know, contemplated that decision a lot because he didn't know me. And I, you know, I knew of him, but didn't know him. So he really took a chance, uh, you know, not knowing, you know, not knowing me, having not been in higher education for the past four years uh, and only having been that good prior to that. Uh, so he really took a chance uh, and, and hired me as the vice president. And what, he, what he's allowed me to do was really take this position and shape it, uh, and and make it into you know what I thought the the what I thought institutional advancement should look like at at a higher education institution. Uh, so it's 
it's been a lot of challenges because you know we don't have now the staff size that we had when we were under the Presley initiative. So I'm coming back now with a small a smaller team than what I left. Uh, I'm, we're we're dealing with a number of challenges, uh, you know, just trying to figure out. We were when I got back, we were still putting together some of the buildings after Hurricane, and now we're talking, you know, twelve years, uh, eight years after the after the hurricane. So we're still putting the campus back together. There's this huge loan that we took out over $130 million, $120 million loan that we took out from the federal government. Um, the debt service on that was coming due and it was going to just be really onerous. So there were all these issues that we were dealing with. At the same time, we were dealing with retention issues. Uh, you know, we were nowhere, I think we were at something like 60% retention uh, first to second year. Um, graduation rate under 50%. So there were, there were a number of issues that we had to, to deal with and tackle. Uh, so Dr. Kimbrough and I, you know, we talk a lot uh, about, you know, what are the plans and what are probably going to address these things, but we, and we got to work. Uh, so I, I really want to say that um, tackling and tackling all of those issues, everything has been strategic, but it's also been entrepreneurial. So we've been able to just build new stuff and do things. Uh, I can say that we, you know, in our work together, we were able to get that loan forgiven, uh, which would clear, you know, 100, over $120 million off of our debt service. Which, you know, we're, we're a debt-free institution. Um, we were able to start a fund called SAFE. It's called the um, Student Assistance for Financial Emergencies. Uh, when you ask me one of the things that I'm, I'm really proud of, I'm going to say that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of, uh, which I'm most proud because... When we started that fund, uh, it, it really was to address uh, several students who were about to graduate who had balances. Uh, and had they not been able to pay those, balance, those balances, they would not have been able to receive their degrees that they had worked so hard to get. Uh, so, so Dr. Kimmerer and I thought of this fund that we this emergency. Yeah. Just on that note, Dr. Barnes, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how that, that challenge, right? I mean, basically, these are kids, they're about to graduate, they've done, they've done the work academically, financially, they're in a tough situation. Yeah. How does that even land on your desk or on, on Dr. Kimbrough's desk? I mean, you've got a lot of different things you could raise money for. Yeah. What was the process? And did you get down to the level of even getting to know those students? I mean, I'm just curious to yeah. know about that yeah. human no, element great, here. Great question. Uh, the answer to that question is so when, I, when I'm talking about how we do things differently here and how we can be entrepreneurial, um, I would tell you that, you know, if you look at an institutional advancement office and you talk about relationships with, relationships with students, um, those two things don't usually go in the same conversation. It's, that's not what it is here. Um, you know, I teach a class of freshmen. Um, I have, I mentor uh, quite a number of the young men here. Uh, and I have a administrative, I'm the administrative liaison to one of the members of the SGA. Uh, so uh, Dr. Kimbrough's expectation is that we are all connected to our students. Uh, and, and that goes to, you know, whether you work in student affairs, if you teach a class, or if you are the CFO. Um, he, his expectation is that we all put our hands on students because at the end of the day, uh, their experience is what makes the universe. Uh, so because of that, um, I got to know quite a number of the students. Um, and then we also do a lot of research. So, you know, every, every decision that we make is a research-based decision. Uh, 
so getting to know the students, but then also understand. So that's how I knew that those seniors had those issues. That's how it got on my desk because I knew them and I knew that they were having it. And it came to me and it was Mr. Barnes at that time. Uh, you know what? I, you know, they were talking about the, the problems and not you know, the possibility of not getting their degree. And I was like, we have to do something. And, and so that's how. Can I ask, I mean, what, what, what kind of, you know, what, what's the balance we're talking about with some of those students? $2,000, yeah. yeah. And, and if you don't solve that problem, they don't get the degree, they don't graduate. I mean, what happens? They don't, I mean, really they, they, they maybe, I don't think they can even walk. I mean, so they can't even walk without, you know, because. So you're just they, fired up. You're like, I know these kids yeah. I see this problem. They're right. good kids. We got to solve it. That's right. And, and it, it was more than just those few. So that, so that the whole thing was, you know, those were symptoms, but not the bigger problem. The bigger problem, we had a lot of other students that, you know, they were, and we would let them carry these balances from year to year, but we really weren't resolving the issue. Then when it was time to graduate, it comes to a head. Or, or we were losing them and the retention rate is poor. And so the data that we had showed that we were actually losing more students due to financial uh, issues than we were because of academics. And the average balance was somewhere in the neighborhood, to your question, about $2,500. Uh, so this fund, so we started this fund initially with the intent to help those few seniors, uh, but with the larger issue in mind that we have this kind of systemic problem that we need to deal with. Uh, and our alumni really jumped on this. Within the first year, we raised over a million dollars, primarily from alumni. Uh, and then we started getting foundation support, other organizational support for uh, so we've now helped, we've probably raised now about $4 million for this, and uh, we've been able to help over a thousand students. Uh, and wow. our retention rate has gone, is now, I think, in the, close to 90%. Uh, and our uh, graduation rate has risen up to 50%. So it really has made a difference. Wow. Can I ask, like, as you went out to make the case to alumni, I'm sure in some regards it was... Um you know, broad-based efforts, but it had to be one-on-one -on -one conversations as well. Yeah. How much did it matter that you could and that your staff, like having that student to advancement connectivity, it's one thing to say, hey, look, we've got an issue, we've got a problem, financial uh, pressures are challenging retention, they're challenging graduation rates, we'd like to solve that problem. It's another thing to say, and let me tell you about this kid, Mark, who's a senior, who is such a good, I mean, did you, did you kind of like, how do you get down to that next level of not just an abstract issue, but like there's a real person behind this. And did it give you more confidence in making the ask and your team doing the fundraising because you knew those kids on a personal level? Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, we, we took it even a step further and we had the students meet the donors or the prospective donors. We had the it. students talk to the alumni, talk about their stories, that they can share their it. stories. We use videos on social media. Um, you know, whenever we would have alumni gatherings, we would bring students in with us to talk about their stories. Uh, so we, we not only told their stories, but we allowed them to tell their own stories. And I think that's what really resonated with, uh, with our alumni in particular. I and, and then the, the, the other kind of, 
I won't say unintended consequence, because this is also very intentional, but the other result of this effort was when I got here, our alumni giving rate was about 4%. Uh, we brought it all the way up to 23. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it not only impacted the safe fund, but it impacted the, you know, the, the alumni giving rate. As it's well. incredible. It's incredible. And, and look, I think this also highlights one of the um, ongoing debates in the sector, which is what do we want? We want unrestricted money. What are you talking about? You're talking about the most restricted, most specific problem solving payment to support a kid. And I think that's where I think that's where we're missing a lot of opportunity, because if you had just said, please give to the annual fund versus let me tell you about this senior who's about to graduate. Here's a video of that person. I'm going to include them in the meeting and you donor can make the difference for this kid. That's the ultimate restricted gift. Yet I feel like we've been so averse to that sort of fundraising, but you're showing it can not only drive revenue, it can solve problems, it can grow participation. Why aren't we doing more of that all the time by default in this sector? Yeah, and I think the other part of that, that conversation is we look at unrestricted giving so narrowly that we miss the opportunity to look at budget relief. So something can be restricted, but also budget relieving. So, you know, that you think about uh, the fact that those were very restricted gifts to the state fund, but really that money served the exact same purpose as an unrestricted gift. So it helped relieve the, the you know, that's revenue that we would not have received otherwise that still goes to the bottom line. So, um, so I think we have to, to, to get out of the very narrow thinking of purely unrestricted dollar and think about what's really budget relieving dollars so that uh, you can guide people to give to whatever their affinity is, because really giving is about what the donor wants to do, not about what we need. Uh, so if you can align the donor's desires to um, what the institution needs from a budgetary standpoint, uh, even if those things are defined as restricted, they're still very helpful. Well, and I also got, I have to imagine, I'm curious to know now, like in that range you're talking about, that $2,000, $2,500 kind of average, balance, let's say, you've now got a really compelling price point, if you will, to go to somebody who maybe has given a hundred bucks on again, off again, and offer them a stretch opportunity into kind of a $2,000, level, or to somebody who wants to have a bigger impact, it could be more, how many kids do you want to support? 10, 20, 30, 50. Um, but I would imagine that, you know, because sometimes people are like, what's the difference between my $100 gift or my $500 gift, my $2,500 gift? I don't know where it goes anyways. It's very different to be able to say $2,500 can solve this problem. That's a lot different than $2,500 will buy you the brick in the walkway. Right. That's right. Yeah, no, that's, that's, it, that is, you're exactly right about that. I don't even have, I can't even say it any better than you just did. But do you um, have examples of people who, you know, that kind of accessible donation level where it was maybe a stretch, maybe more yep. than they'd done before, but because it was linked to such a concrete solution to a problem for a specific kid, did that make it easier for them to make that leap that they otherwise never would have done to a more generic appeal? I'll give you this example. We have a donor. Um, I'm not sure I should see his name, so I won't. It's okay. Uh, yeah. But we have a donor who, uh, who's been supporting us for a long time. He's a former trustee. Um, and he would give us about a hundred grand a year. Um, and we started talking to him about the safe fund. And what we decided to do and what 
you know, in, in our conversations with him, and really it was his decision to do this, he said, I will double my contribution to this because we were able to show him how it had an impact. He said, but I also want you to use this as a challenge to your other donors. So if you can raise 200, I'll give you this 200 and you can use this money for, um, for the safe zone. Uh, and, and we did that. And actually that has now become the basis of our giving Tuesday. Uh, and so we use that now as part of our giving Tuesday campaign. And he, he has been phenomenal. It was because we were able to show him the impact of you know, how, many, how many students he was able to help. And now that we've been doing this with him for several years, we can say, now look, these students are actually graduating so we definitely show that. And then the other thing that we that. show in terms of impact is when we lose a student who has a $2,500 balance, we're not just losing $2,500 in the student, we're also losing all the other revenue that that student comes with. So really when you make a $2,500 investment in a student, you really, the leverage opportunity for that is really now about $22,000 to $25,000 because we're still retaining that other revenue that we would have otherwise lost had that had that student left the university. Housing, dining, That's other right. activities, et cetera. Got it. Well, look, I think to everybody listening, um, the big takeaway here for me is what are the budget relieving restricted gifts that could make a difference to your institution? It's not necessarily a clear trade-off. You might be able to find a way to do both. I do have to ask, I mean, to go from zero to four million to an impact over a thousand students, you're not the only institution struggling with this financial pressure, um, have others come to you and said, hey, we got to get our own safe fund. I mean, why, why wouldn't every institution uh, do a safe fund? And, and frankly, I think a lot of the student emergency funds we saw emerge during COVID sound a lot like right. what you all already had in place with your safe fund. I think, I think it's about how you cultivate it. And so, uh, you know, there are lots of schools that, that have funds like this. I mean, we, don't, we certainly aren't the first. Um, the the key for us is how we were able to, uh, to have our students participate in this process uh, so that people can really understand them. Uh, and I think it was also, you know, I, I will say that uh, we have a president who really understands communications uh, and who really understands how to leverage and harness social media. Uh, so a, a lot of this happened on our social media um, platforms and campaigns. And, you know, we were able to bring in a lot of our younger alumni as a result of that. Um, so we have really good leadership uh, that, that was 100% participative in this process. Uh, we have an outstanding team that know how to, um, to connect with our alumni in, in, in all kinds of different ways, right? whether it's on the telephone, by email, social media, uh, going to face-to-face visits. Uh, so... We, we made a real campaigning effort out of this every year. So it wasn't like, you know, we just put it out there and hope people would bite. It was something that we really managed as a campaign. Yep. And it's been successful. I love it. Okay, last thing that I want to get your take on and I want to be sensitive of time. Take me back to mid-December 2020 when you uh, get the news that you, uh, that Dillard is included in Mackenzie Scott's uh, unbelievable philanthropy. That had to be a fun day. And I want to know about it, not just wh- what it was like to find out what it was like to 
you know, talk about with Dr. Kimbrough and the staff, but also being a part of the HBC community, which you've referenced so many times on the episode already today. What was it like? I mean, you must have friends at different places. I mean, were the text messages flying or people FaceTime and just like, what was that like as a yeah. member of that community, both your own undergraduate experience and obviously professionally? Yeah, it was, uh, it, it's transformative. So I'll, I'll share with you uh, that we learned about it in October. Uh, so we had to sit on this for a couple of months. Uh, and so not everybody was, did, right? I mean, a lot of people just found out that day. I, I think thought. most of them, I think most of them, by the time she announced it, she had already doled out the money. Uh, so we had okay. already received the money. But, uh, but, you know, we were, we were sworn to secrecy. We couldn't, we could not share until she shared. Um, so only a handful of us at the institution knew about it. Um, so when we found out about it, we were just completely floored. I mean, we, we had not received a $5 million gift from an individual ever uh, at the institution. Um, but when we were able to release the information after uh, uh, Mackenzie Scott you know, did her piece about it in December, uh, yeah, you're right, the floodgates opened. I got text messages, email, uh, people wanna know, I, I, give me her number. I want to know how to get it too. That's like, look, <laughs> let me just be honest with you. We did not solicit that. Now, that's the biggest gift I ever got from an individual. And I didn't ask for it. Um, she had her own metrics, her own team that figured out, you know, how they want to identify the organizations and institutions that she would support. Uh, and then, you know, I, to this day, I've never talked to McKenzie Scott. Uh, we've only talked to, you know, through her, um, through the mechanism by which the money came to us. Uh, we've got communications about, you know, uh, reporting and those kinds of things. But uh, it, it's, it's transformative for us because not only did she give us $5 million, but she said, you do with it what you think is best for your institution. And I think that is a sea change in, uh, in how philanthropy works. Uh, and, you know, I, I, it, I am not going to be the one to sit here and, and tell philanthropists how to do their own philanthropy. Uh, but I will say that uh, what she did was transformative in the amount that she gave and by the way she's allowing it. It had to be just an unbelievable, it yeah, was. just a bright spot during It was a euphoria. You know. It was absolutely a euphoria. Yeah. After we picked so, our mouths up off the floor. Yeah, I mean, look, like 2020, uh, there have been some incredible lows and some amazing highs, like like what you just uh, shared. Um, how do you feel as 2021 approaches? I mean, what's what are you excited about um, for the coming years? Uh, you know, in, in, in the next chapter of your career, um, kind of what are the big ideas, the things that you're excited about? Uh, and then I, I definitely want to make sure that we let our audience know how to stay in touch with you um, after the episode. Sure. Uh, I, I'm really excited about what's going to happen, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, all the stuff that we're dealing with in terms of um, social and racial justice uh, has been, you know, because it's all kind of out there now for us to have these conversations, uh, I really feel good that we are going to really move this country forward in terms of how we resolve some of these issues. I love that HBCUs are, are really now in the, you know, in the spotlight. Uh, I would say it's about time. We've been doing this now for some, you know, over 150 years. And, and so it's, it's finally, people are recognizing us as, as viable institutions that are making a difference in not just higher education, but in the nation and in the economy. Uh, 
so I feel good that we are moving in the right direction. Uh, and what's going to happen in this country, I think, over time uh, is going to be um, a real change in terms of how we all view each other and how we all operate with each other. Uh, I think this is a really good time for HBCUs. HBCUs need to seize this moment and uh, make sure that they're telling their stories and make sure that they are uh, you know, putting out there the, the great work that they're doing so that Mackenzie Scott can recognize all of us. And I would love to see that. Uh, so that, that's what I'm really excited about. I, I think there's a lot of hope and, uh, and I think we're all feeling it. We'll always be great, grateful when this, this pandemic is done so we can get back in, in, in our face-to-face -face meetings and, and visits. Uh, I do believe that we're heading in that direction. Well, Dr. Barnes, thank you for such an inspiring conversation, for sharing your journey, the twists and turns along the way. And I share your optimism and hope. And I think that um, so many of the problems we're dealing with across different parts of society have to be addressed by way of education in general and certainly through the HBCU community specifically. So um, thank you. How, how can our audience um, stay in touch? Yeah, email me at mbarnes, M-B-A-R-N-E-S at dillard.edu. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Mark A. Barnes, and Mark is M-A-R-C, M-A-R-C-A Barnes. And you can find me on Facebook at um, Mark A. Barnes as well. And uh, I'm also on Instagram at uh, Anthony Barnes. Love it. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story. And I'm really hopeful someday that we're able to enjoy some uh, crawfish Monica at Jazz Fest. Yes, all right. I will, I will and I will, I will host you at Jazz Fest. All right, game on. It sounds great. Have a uh, wonderful rest of the week. And with that, Brent signing off with uh, Dr. Mark A. Barnes, the Vice President of Advancement at Dillard University. Thank you, Dr. Barnes. Cheers. Thank you. I appreciate it.